Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, July 13th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the State Public Service Commission has launched an investigation into last month's prolonged power outages. Public health officials are taking new steps to test pregnant folks for syphilis. Plus, the Mississippi Arts Commission is awarding $1.7 million in grants. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's three public service commissioners are launching an investigation into Entergy's readiness to handle power outages associated with June severe storms. Those outages started when a severe weather system hung over the state for several days. During that time, high wind speeds knocked out power to about 200,000 customers. Some homes were without power for days while temperatures continued to rise to dangerous levels. Our Mike McEwen speaks with Brent Bailey, Public Service Commissioner for the Central District. He says they want to understand why it took Entergy so long to restore power. We began exploring, questioning, um, and trying to understand what was happening, where was the deficiencies in the communication process, uh, what are some of the practices and protocols in, in determining, um, evaluating the outages, the, the severity of an outage, and how that information was getting out to the line workers that are out there on the ground and, and able to do that and, and, and get the lights and power restored as quickly and as safely as possible. And, you know, let me just stay right there that this review by the commission today is no way, shape, or form uh, indicative of any dissatisfaction of our line workers, the linemen that are out on the ground, those that put in 16 hours a day for multiple days straight to get the power restored as quickly, quickly as possible. Uh, those first responders, those linemen, we owe everything to them and the sacrifices, the professionalism they have in doing all this. But that said, there were frustrations within our office and within customers in general, and we are initiating this action to help get answers for ourselves and for consumers um, on the preparations leading up to the storms that came in. What uh, were they doing as far as bringing in, contracting with crews externally from around the region? What kind of communication processes were in place, and how did 
those systems not perform up to expectations and standards. Uh, we want explanations of how do they go about doing outsourcing for customer service representatives and others uh, to help engage and be that face or voice of the utility during these these times of, of outages and of great duress on customers. So, you know, we're now embarking on this, and we want to understand uh, how, how going forward, how are they going to get the proper uh, manpower and personnel in place to prevent the frequency and duration of outages in the event of, of severe weather events? Uh, what are they going to do to enhance their customer service as well as their communications, their frontline communications with customers to help them better understand when that restoration will can be expected? And what are they going to do as far as um, you know, better invest in their distribution system. A lot of the damages, most all the damages we saw in June was at the distribution level, not the generation, transmission, transmission or substation level, but that distribution level, those lines and infrastructure that brings the power to the front door of your home and business. What are they going to do as far as increasing, improving vegetation management along those right-of-ways? What about strategic undergrounding of power lines? or other measures to really harden the system and create resiliency in the face of extreme weather events. I know the storm system had some pretty significant winds, I believe up to like 80 mile per hour straight line winds. And I was wondering what you really could do in a preventative way with that infrastructure to protect against that. I mean, we we can't control mother nature, Um, you know, weather and she can, be fierce. There's no doubt about that. Sometimes you have the ability to prepare, um, particularly in tropical storms or hurricanes that are bearing down on the land area, and you have sometimes multiple days to uh, prepare, stage, and you know provide a, a response plan. Um, these somewhat, yes, were surprising at the intensity and frequency of these storms training over a single area, but you know in the days leading up to sort of June 10th when everything initiated, there were, you know, fairly detailed weather forecasts that predicted series of severe storms, severe weather throughout the Mid-South. And and you could certainly see what was happening in areas like Texas and Oklahoma. Um, and generally that is a, is a precursor to severe weather in our neck of the woods. As always, we and the utilities have lessons learned. We certainly want to ensure best as we can that we don't have these types of um, you know, outages down the road. Uh, people lost substantial amounts of food, uh, medicine, expenditures on fuel for generators, or staying in hotels. And for a lot of folks, that's just that put a strain on their budget. Um, we'll have, a, you know, quite frankly, a lot of low-income customers within the metro area and within the central district and when you're on fixed incomes or don't have a whole lot of disposable income and you lose large amounts of uh, food medicine or expended on fuel or hotels um, it puts a a crimp in your your budget for what could be a, a long time is there an example of the public service commission issuing this sort of comprehensive review for, if not Entergy, then other utilities in the state of Mississippi? We, that we have. Uh, if you may recall, uh, 
February 2021, Winter Storm Uri rolled through the state of Mississippi. Uh, ice storm rolling blackouts periodically within the MISO footprint. Same event that left Texas crippled all across the state with millions of outages that resulted in hundreds of deaths. While we didn't have that type of severity here, we still had lengthy outages that we had to deal with, not just on the electricity side, but in certain areas you saw loss of pressure from natural gas and you saw failures of water systems in multiple jurisdictions across the state, from uh, loss of electricity to wellheads freezing up, distribution pipes, uh, breakage of mains, and that kind of stuff. From that, uh, the commission initiated a public utility infrastructure review. And one year from the date of February 2021 storm, we rolled out that and with assistance from outside consultants to really look at the infrastructure, communications, and other planning processes uh, that deal with extreme weather events. And in that case, <laughs> really focused on uh, severe winter weather. However, the findings from that, in our view, certainly cut across all opportunities and um, to evaluate, you know, how utilities can respond, should respond, and provide the necessary investments to harden their systems, to weatherize, to prepare. And so this is certainly not a unique action we've taken today, and in my view, builds upon the actions that we took in February 2021 after Winter Storm Uri. Brent Bailey is Public Service Commissioner for Mississippi's Central District. Entergy provided a response which in part says we have an intensive storm evaluation process and we are working to correct issues experienced by the systems that identify where outages exist and provide customers with information about their outage and estimated restoration timeline. As we always do, we will keep the commission apprised throughout this process. Coming up, syphilis cases have surged in the state to over 900% in recent years. Now health officials want more testing done. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks to our sustaining members who provide ongoing monthly financial support. You can become a sustainer too. Go to mpbonline.org and click Donate Now at the top of the page. AutoCorrect on MPB Think Radio, helping you correct your auto problems. Our host is Coach Charlie Milton, ASC Certified Master Technician. Let me help save you some money working on your cars. Listen to our podcast, AutoCorrect. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi's Board of Health has adopted a new policy to test pregnant mothers for syphilis more often. The number of babies born with a sexually transmitted disease increased by over 900 percent between 2016 and 2021. Our Will Stribling speaks with State Health Officer Dr. Catherine Taylor about the change. We have a high priority on syphilis, particularly in pregnancy. Syphilis decreased the overall uh, numbers of congenital syphilis in the future. Bacillin is the only drug that can be used in pregnancy for treatment of syphilis. There are alternative medications that can be used in other individuals. As of right now, there is a shortage of bacillin across the country. 
the Department of Health currently has adequate supply to use bicillin for all of our syphilis cases. We're watching it extremely closely. Back in the spring, we did have a brief period where supplies got low, and so we put a policy in place to prioritize bicillin for pregnant and breastfeeding individuals. But then we found an alternate pathway and have been able to maintain adequate supplies since then. So we're hopeful that we're going to be able to continue to maintain that, in which case there will be no impact to treatment of syphilis in Mississippi, um, but we are watching it very closely. Well, wonderful. That's that that's that's great to hear, and that's how you that's you said that there's. Um, I knew that it was the um, you know only recommended treatment for pregnant women who are, are affected with syphilis, and you know very effective at preventing transmission to the fetus. Uh, but so that there is no like there there are no alternatives like that if if a pregnant woman you know is found to have syphilis that she has to get bicillin. So the the alternative treatment for syphilis is doxycycline, which is contraindicated in pregnancy. Um, So most of the time, if a pregnant woman is identified to have syphilis and is also allergic to penicillin, um, they will actually arrange to go through um, desensitization so that that woman can be treated with with bicillin. So um, there's really not a safe alternative because doxycycline has its own complications. Yeah. And we've seen, you know, syphilis rates skyrocketing nationwide. And then there was attention focused on Mississippi just because that 900 percent figure was so striking uh, when looking at the increase between, I think it was 2016, 2021. I might be wrong there. So as far as prevention and getting that number down, what uh, what efforts do you think need to be um, increased or expanded uh, upon across the state? Um, so I don't know if you are aware in um, in March and then an update in April, we put out a update to um, syphilis testing requirements in pregnancy um, that was voted on today by the Board of Health to make the change uh, to the rules and regulations. Um, so now there is a requirement for healthcare providers uh, to test pregnant women during the first trimester um, during the third trimester and also at delivery um, in order to um, to identify cases of syphilis in pregnant women and get them treated uh, ahead of time so that we can prevent congenital syphilis. Um, for any case of syphilis, we have staff at the Department of Health that um, go out and do follow-up and investigation to try to identify contacts um, to ensure that the cases get treatment to ensure that contacts are able to be uh, be seen and tested and treated as needed. Um, and so, you know, we're working uh, to maintain that capacity and also working with a variety of providers across um, the state along with other partners like the Mississippi State Medical Association, the Division of Medicaid, um, University of Mississippi Medical Center, and quite a few others to get the message out to healthcare providers um, to do this testing. We also have plans to work with community providers to start um, uh, providing education to the public about the importance of testing for syphilis um, and getting treated if they are diagnosed. So um, we have lots of good work um, in progress uh, or coming soon, and we're hopeful that um, as we move forward, we'll be able to decrease overall numbers of syphilis, but hopefully 
it will lead to prevention of congenital syphilis entirely. That, that is my hope. That's wonderful to hear. I, I didn't know that that happened today, so thank you for telling me. The last I'd heard was, I believe it was Dr. Byers a few months ago said that they were exploring that possibility. So who, who was it that proposed that rule change, and um, and how did the, the final vote tally go? I assume that it was a unanimous yes. Yeah, so, so Dr. Byers did an emergency modification to the rules and regs by um, memo and health alert network message, which is available on our website the final rules and regulations change was placed on the consent agenda for the Board of Health today, and the consent agenda was approved in its entirety. And that's very much a step in in the right direction, but there are still going to be women that fall through the cracks there just because there's such a, a large number of pregnant women who do, don't get prenatal care in Mississippi. Now, I don't know the numbers, but I imagine that's where a lot of the congenital syphilis cases come from, is from women who aren't getting care that that is generally correct. So that's that's part of the reason why, in addition to working with organizations that can provide education to healthcare providers, we're also working on ways to get the information out to the community in general. Um, just just so that the community is aware that syphilis is a concern and that testing is available, um, and and to make sure that that people do um, test when needed and follow up as appropriate. Also, just tell me a bit about like what a pregnant woman could could have syphilis and and not know it because as far as the the health risks, it's much more dangerous for the baby than the um, the mother. Yes, syphilis has several stages um, that goes through, and some of them are more noticeable than others. In women, in particular, if the lesions that they develop are internal, then they may not be aware. Um, it may not be painful. At some stages, there's actually not visible lesions. But the early and then up to the later stages are all treatable with reversible symptoms, I guess you could say. Now, if syphilis goes untreated long enough, then there are complications that occur in adults long term. In developing fetus, if if they are infected, then you know that actually can impact the way the fetus and the infant develop, and so it can cause sort of long term complications if not caught and treated early. Dr. Katherine Taylor is the state epidemiologist. Ahead, Mississippi's Art Commission provides grants to help organizations and artists throughout the state. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Mississippi Arts Commission is awarding $1.7 million in grants to organizations, schools, and individual artists. This is in part due to an increase in funding from the state legislature, which allows them to award over 330 different organizations and people. We speak with Executive Director David Lewis about the grant program. We receive funding mostly from the state of Mississippi, the state legislature, as well as the National Endowment for the Arts, largely for the purpose of granting to artists and arts organizations across the state. What is it that you want to see 
from these grants? What's what's the goal? The goal is partly to invest in artists as they're doing their work and support them as they're becoming hopefully full-time artists and creating wonderful works about Mississippi and telling Mississippi stories. But it's also hopefully to invest in communities with arts organizations doing arts programming investing in kids in their citizens in many different ways so it's it's arts programming as well as an investment in the artist directly how is mississippi doing in terms of the arts because we are a poor state and when you think about the need for housing and food and a livable wage art doesn't seem to come up in the equation even though it is a significant part of life and enriches life. Absolutely. So in the grand scheme of things, you know, 1.75 million is a lot of money, but we're and we're very gracious for it. But it's not as much as is usually spent in, you know, transportation or those very vital parts of of life. But what we do is increase the quality of life to make sure that the arts comes in and says, "Hey, we want to make sure that as you are living and as you're able to grow, there there are opportunities even in careers, but also in the experience of where you live um, to make life worth living and, and an exciting and joyful experience. And so arts organizations really thrive in that space of creating events for neighborhoods or there, anybody in their town to come and experience music, oftentimes for free. A lot of the programming that is supported by us is free and open to the public. So it is accessible to anybody, regardless of where they live or where they come from. It's for them. How do you find Mississippians respond to art? Mississippians love art. I mean, we're very proud of the artists that we have, you know, oftentimes exported. You see lots of famous people who are birthed in Mississippi and birthed in the arts because of it. And so... We have this amazing kind of magic that happens in Mississippi around the arts with musicians and actors and painters and writers who there's something about, I think, Mississippi that that makes that magic happen. But we have them that are still here and they're amazing and they're producing remarkable work here in Mississippi. I mean, a great example of this is the amount and the um, breadth of public public art that is um, happening all across the state. You can go to just about any town now in Mississippi and see a remarkable new fresh mural that is expressive of that community or someone you might not have known was in that community and, and been like, wow, this person lives in you know, Rolling Fork or in Hattiesburg or in Laurel, Mississippi or even in Oxford. And it's a great way to express somebody's artistic gift to the public. Tell us about some of the people or organizations that you have provided grants to this year? So we provided grants for a little over 330 um, grantees across the state. That includes 66 uh, arts organizations. So for them, we give operating support. So this is museums of art. This is symphonies, ballets, uh, local arts organizations that do programming in the arts in their communities and sometimes across the state. And so we have those grants. We also have given uh, projects to support to 75 arts and community-based organizations for a specific project. And a great example of this is recently the Mississippi Symphony Orchestra held a performance at uh, LaFleur's Bluff State Park. And it was like, under the stars or it was like during a meteor shower and it was all this sort of uh it was all kind of orchestrated and structured around the stars it was in partnership the grant went to the nat uh the mississippi 
uh, Natural Science Museum. And so they received the grant to bring the symphony in because it was their idea to do the stars and relate it to science. And it was a great example of the, sort of the arts partnering with an organization that doesn't straight up have an arts-based mission to do something in the arts and create this really dynamic program. What about those that focus on children? Great. So um, there are programs for local ballets and local symphonies that work in the schools or have actual programming that they provide uh, to teach ballet to kids who want to sign up for it. Oftentimes we get grants from the Children's Museum or the Children's Museum in Meridian to provide uh, a specific program. They usually get project grant support that we provide um, to them to do some sort of arts-based programming within their communities. David Lewis is executive director of the Mississippi Arts Commission. The agency has also accepted 24 schools into its new Whole Schools Initiative, which provides arts education training to teachers. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.